Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. Real people experiencing real change because of a real Savior. Uh, We are starting a new series today. Uh, We're calling Oasis. Oasis is a place where the thirsty find their thirst satisfied in the middle of a dry and nasty desert. Uh, A pastor and blog writer and podcaster named Steve Carter, because it feels like everybody's got one of those slash titles at this point. There are this and that. And anyway, he's he's one of those et cetera people. So uh, Steve Carter was on a trip to Israel a few years back to do kind of the Holy Land tour kind of thing. And he tells a story of while he was there, asking a rabbi who was kind of showing them around and giving them a little of the Old Testament tour. He said, Rabbi, in the Hebrew scriptures, which is now what we have as the Old Testament in the Bible, he said, in the Hebrew scriptures, there's Egypt, there's the desert, and there's the promised land. How much of our life do you think we spend in Egypt and how much in the desert and how much in the promised land? Now, in this metaphor, Egypt would represent the feeling of clear danger or the feeling of being trapped or held back. The promised land is the place where your dreams are coming true, where life feels whole, that that feeling of, ah. And then the desert is everything in between. And the rabbi replied, and I have to confess that when I hear this story, I, I think it must have been delivered with a very Seinfeldian shrug. Like, uh. Anyway, the rabbi replied, you Americans, you're so silly. You think, you really expect that most of your life is going to be lived in the promised land. He said in Hebrew thinking, 10, 15% of our life is in the promised land. 10 to 15% of our life is spent in Egypt. And the rest, 70 to 75% is lived in the desert. Life in the desert, wandering, questioning, wrestling, unclear where to go, unclear if those dreams will ever come true, unclear if you're even headed the right direction. I love that sound. Sorry, okay. Fantastic. Uh, This week, we start uh, a season in the church calendar called Lent. Now, we don't spend a lot of time in our church paying close attention to the church calendar. Some of you may be even thinking, what does this have to do with upcoming events? It's a very different thing. There is a global church calendar, and in our church, we try to hit the high points. We, you know, Christmas, Easter, Pentecost. We also like to hit a couple of seasons. Advent, as we are leading up to Christmas, and then Lent is the lead up to Easter. Lent is the season of preparing our hearts and minds for the tragedy and gift that is Good Friday, and the triumph that is Easter Sunday. 
And as we get to the end of this season of Lent, this season in which we are encouraged, throughout church history, people would fast, they would lay something down, they would give something up to say, I don't want anything to come between me and what God has for me. And you have that opportunity in this season to lay something down that may be getting between you and God or may just draw your attention when you miss it to go, oh yeah, God, I know you're up to something in my life right now. You're invited to pick up a new habit, something that would move you closer to God or draw your attention more to him. And as we get to the end of this Lent season, we will come to an Egypt-type event that is Good Friday, is Jesus' death on the cross and a promised land event that is the stone rolled away and the resurrected Savior on Easter morning. It's in the in-between, though, that we live most of our lives. And yes, that is just one rabbi's opinion and an unscientific statistic, to be sure, but feels about right to me. And I think is a good starting place for us as we lean into Lent and as we head into this series, we live most of our lives in the in-between. And for those of you who like to take notes, that's your first one in there. We live most of our lives in the in-between, wondering where God is leading us, wondering if God is leading us. Sometimes wondering if God is even real. Emerging from the shackles of addiction, not knowing where to turn now for comfort. Emerging from the burden of grief to find that the sun burns and the sand is hot. And we have to keep going because life keeps going, but we're not really sure where we're going wondering what happened to the dreams that we thought were ours, wrestling with our doubts, wrestling with our temptations, questioning our vision. Is, is that really an oasis I see? Or is that just a mirage that's gonna fail me and leave me disappointed and thirstier than I was before? The desert times in our life can feel disorienting and lonely. But the promise of God in Scripture is that we will never be alone. Jesus promises that He is with us always. And we may only see Him clearly in fulfilled promises and glory days, but He has promised to be with us in the desert, in our wandering and in our doubts. In the story I told a moment ago, Steve Carter sets up this paradigm or this metaphor of Egypt and desert and promised land. And if you are unfamiliar, that's a story or a metaphor that comes from the Old Testament. It comes from the story of the people of Israel, this family that became a tribe that became a nation. And it started with God going to an old man named Abraham 
who was well beyond years of having children and he had none and said, I am not only going to give you a child, I'm gonna give you generations and those generations are gonna become a nation and through that nation, I am going to bless all other nations. And then a few generations later through God's orchestration and the wisdom of a man named Joseph, the people of Israel have become a family and they are invited to move into Egypt to come and live in Egypt and they flourish there. They flourish so well, in fact, that the people of Egypt go, wait a minute, these people who don't look like us and don't sound like us and don't have the same priorities of us as us, as us I'll spit it out eventually, are really growing in number and growing in prosperity and pretty soon they're gonna realize that they might have more power than we do. We better stop them before that happens and so they enslave them. And suddenly the people of God's promise, God's chosen people are enslaved in a foreign country, far away from the land that God had promised to Abraham. And they're there for hundreds of years until God raises up a man named Moses. And he says, hey, remember that promised land that I talked to Abraham about? It's time to lead the people there and lead them out of Egypt. And so Moses goes to the people, he says, hey, God's ready to take us into this promised land if you will just follow me out of here. And through some incredible and frankly painful miracles, God orchestrates the release of his people. They're sent out by the people of Egypt with their blessing and provisions for their journey. And it is a crazy story. And then they're heading out this tribe of people into the desert headed toward their promised land. And then they wander around in circles for 40 years before they get to that promised land. And nearly an entire generation dies off before they enter in. And throughout all of their wandering in circles, they battle with doubts about God's provision, about his protection, about his presence. Is he even here? And over the next few weeks, we will cover all of that, or at least a lot of it. This morning, though, I want to start with how Israel was named. Names and labels are really powerful things. Out of curiosity, does anybody know what their name means? Anybody want to shout out some meanings of names? What does your name mean? My name is Rochelle, and it means rock, which is here. Rock, Rochelle, little rock. I like it. Yeah. I'm James, so that means supplanter. Supplanter. Okay, now you're scaring me. Okay, other... <laughs> Other, anybody? Yes. I'm Kaylee, and my name means hero or heroine. Hero or heroine. Awesome. Love it. Yeah, our, our name. Yeah, one more. Wise discerner. That is so true. I, our names maybe have more power than we realize. I mean, at its most base level, your name is simply a series of sounds put together 
that people have agreed upon to get your attention, right? Like your parents just needed something to yell. So they put together some sounds and they said, this is the thing we will yell when we need this human being's attention, okay? Not a very romantic view of a name, but it's what it's for. It's how we get each other's attention. When people think of your name, you may have a really unique name. And so when people think of your name, they automatically think of you. Even if you have a very common name and there were 16 of you in your third grade class, which is only a slight exaggeration, somebody out there, when they think of your name, they think of you. And when they think of your name, something comes to mind. A sound, a smell, a memory, a stereotype, a judgment, a smile, a cringe. When you hear somebody call your name, whether it's somebody who loves you or somebody who does not, you react. That's your name. Even if somebody isn't trying to get your attention, they're trying to get the attention of the person over there, you still turn, right? And when certain people call your name, you smile, you melt, you get angry, you cringe. Names have a powerful way of labeling us and connecting us, connecting us to our memories, to other people, to our relationships. And the people of Israel have an origin story for their name, and it powerfully labels this people group and labels their relationship with God. And I think it is a label and a relationship that many of us could identify with and should at the very least pay attention to. This is what God's chosen people were called. And what does that mean for us who are God's chosen people today? The origin story starts with a man named Jacob. Uh, speaking of names and meanings, Jacob or Jacob sounds like the Hebrew word for heel or deceiver. When Jacob was born, he was uh, born a twin and his brother Esau came out first and Jacob came out grasping his heel. That's where the heel part comes in. And the deceiver part is pretty much everything from there on forward. We'll skip some of the stories and just get to where Esau and Jacob are young men. And it is time for their father to give his blessing. And this isn't just a uh, trite blessing, like, oh, bless your heart. No, this is, this is a significant deal. This is almost like a, a will, an inheritance. Like he's blessing them with all of God's favor, whatever favor, which to them included relationships and provision, whatever favor God has given them, he wants to pass down. And it's important in their culture that he passes it down to the oldest son. The little bit of background that you need to know is that as Esau and Jacob grew up, Esau was dad's favorite and Jacob was mom's favorite, okay? They reach this point where it is time for the father to give his blessing because he is dying. He is old, he is blind, he might have a screw loose. And Jacob's mom helps Jacob deceive his father and receive the blessing that was supposed to go to Esau. 
all of that provision and blessing and God's care on their family and on generations to come is blessed upon Jacob and not Esau because of Jacob's deception. Now, Jacob and Esau can't uh, live in that tension for very long, and Esau is bigger and meaner and stronger. So Jacob runs away. And as he runs away, or on his running away, uh, he falls in love with a girl. Cute girl sidetracks the guy running away every time. So he falls in love with this girl, and he goes to her father. He says, I would like to marry your beautiful, wonderful daughter. And, he, and his future father-in-law says, okay, fine. Even though I haven't married off her older sister yet, and it's definitely customary that the older sister gets married first, sure, if you will work for me for seven years, you can marry the girl you're after. And Jacob works for that seven years, and scripture says it went by just like that. And then the tables are flipped on the deceiver. And on his wedding day, his father-in-law deceives him into marrying the older sister so that she gets married off first. Now, if you're wondering how in the world do you marry the wrong person, that's a really good question. And you really should read the story because it's good and it's weird and we're not gonna dwell there. So anyway, he marries the wrong person. He has to work seven more years and then marry the person he wanted to marry in the first place. And then there's a whole lot of weird stories about how he's having children with the first wife and the second wife and the first wife's maid at her request. And then the second wife's maid at her request and it's a soap opera and it's weird, but you can read it for yourself. It's all in scripture. I'm not making any of this stuff up. So scriptures are rated whether we like it or not. Anyway, it's all in there. Eventually, Jacob has a family settled, sort of, and he has decided it is time for him to go back to his homeland. And now the tables are flipped again and he deceives his father-in-law in such a way that it makes Jacob very, very wealthy. And wealth for them would mean lots of people and lots of livestock. And so he heads back to his homeland with his wealth, knowing that he's headed back toward Esau, his older brother, who he figures probably still hates him and probably is still bigger and stronger and meaner, but he's headed back home. And it's on that journey back home where we're gonna pick up the story. And we're picking it up in Genesis chapter 32. And I'm gonna start right at the very first verse of Genesis 32. It says, as Jacob started on his way again, so he's in the desert and they've camped and now he's going again. As Jacob started on his way again, angels of God came to meet him. When Jacob saw them, he exclaimed, this is God's camp. So he named the place Mahanaim, which would make a ton of sense if Mahanaim means God's camp, but it doesn't. It actually means two camps. As in Jacob said, this is God's camp. And then I also have my camp, two camps. Jacob is not willing for some reason to put himself under the umbrella of God's camp. And we have no idea why. It might be shame, it might be fear, it might be stubbornness. It might be a lack of trust. I'm just listing reasons why I struggle to come under God's umbrella. For Jacob, it could be any of these or all of them. 
he has, after all, been the deceiver. I think there's a lesson here for us that we're gonna see throughout the weeks to come. That the desert is a place where we wrestle for authority. The desert is where we wrestle for authority. The desert is where we debate who is in charge. Am I gonna run my life or is God gonna run my life? Can I trust him to run my life? Can I maybe do it better than he can? Which sounds preposterous when we say it out loud, but a lot of us like to live that way. Now, as he sets up his camp in the place of God's camp, Jacob knows that he will soon meet up with Esau. And so he actually sends out an advanced party with gifts for Esau. This is not so much an apology as much as it is an appeasement and an attempt to not get killed. And then Jacob, as we continue through Genesis 32, then Jacob prays to God, prays for protection, that God will protect him and his family and his possessions. He, He even pulls out the God you promised card. God, you promised that you were gonna do this and this and this for my family. God, you promised me in a dream that you would take care of this and this. Remember, you, you promised. God, would you protect me? And then in the middle of the night, after he's prayed this, Jacob moves all of his people and livestock, all of the things he prayed for God to protect out of God's camp and over to the other side of the river. Do you sense the push and pull here with Jacob? This is God's camp and my camp. God, would you protect us? And I also have a plan to protect us. Now, is it okay that we make plans and we take care of some things? Yes, absolutely. I don't think we need to be lying in bed waiting for God to tell us to get out of bed on a Monday morning, as nice as that sounds. We can make some plans and we can move But there is this pull and tug with Jacob and God. This is God's camp and I'm not coming under it. I want God's protection and I want the control of taking care of it myself. And we'll pick up the story there, starting with Jacob moving across the river. So we'll start in verse 22 of Genesis 32. During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two servant wives, and his 11 sons and crossed the Yabbok River with them. After taking them to the other side, he sent over all his possessions. This left Jacob all alone in the camp. And a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. I should say, we are entering into what I think is perhaps the weirdest story in all of scripture. And there are some weird stories in here, but this one is bizarre. Okay. Jacob's all alone in the camp. The man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. Then the man said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. 
He replied, Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and have won. Please tell me your name, Jacob said. Why do you want to know my name? The man replied. Then he blessed Jacob there. Jacob named the place Peniel, which means face of God. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. The sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel, and he was limping because of the injury to his hip. Okay, let's start talking about some of the weirdness in this story. Jacob is there now by himself in the middle of the night, and some guy comes out of the darkness and starts to wrestle with him. Weird enough. The Hebrew word there, where it says a man came to wrestle with him, the Hebrew word behind man really means human. It's a human being, okay? But then later, the man says that Jacob has wrestled with Elohim and with men. Elohim could absolutely mean God, could also mean any divine being. Jacob has wrestled with Elohim and with men. And then at the end, Jacob says, I have seen Elohim face to face and I have survived to tell the tale. Here's what I know for sure, because there's a lot in this story I don't know for sure. Here's what I know for sure. Long before this night of wrestling in the desert with the man or the Elohim, Jacob wrestled with God. Since long before this night of wrestling in the desert, Jacob has been wrestling with God. And we're told that because he wrestles, his name is now Israel. This becomes the name of the people. It is his son, Joseph, who rises to power in Egypt and invites the people in where they are eventually, they flourish and then are enslaved. This is the people of Israel. This is his family. Israel becomes the label that this people will go through life with. And this wrestling becomes their primary characteristic. Over and over again, we see them wrestling with God. So if you are wrestling with God, please know that you are in a long line of good company. Even that name change, though, has an interesting word choice to it. Uh, one of the weird things about this story is the question of who actually wins the wrestling match. So in that name change verse, in uh, it's verse 28 of Genesis 32. The man says, your name will no longer be Jacob. From now on, you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and have won. Well, that, that seems fairly clear. He's, he's, the man says, Jacob won. And yet this man or Elohim had the power to simply touch Jacob's hip and pop it out of socket. So clearly this guy could have won if he wanted to. 
Like, just start popping joints out of socket and eventually you win. Like, I'm not a wrestler, but I'm fairly certain that would work. Dislocate enough things, you win. And then at the end, Jacob says that he has seen Elohim face to face and he has barely survived. <laughs> and then there is the name Israel. Strong's Concordance. A concordance is just uh, a, a book that tells us the meaning behind Hebrew and Greek words that scripture was originally written in. And the Strong's Concordance defines Israel as God prevails. In other words, the man says, because you have wrestled with God and with men and have won, your name is now God wins. A strange statement. Now, I will say that there is some disagreement about what Israel means and how we would define that. And I will also say that anytime there, any words that there is disagreement over what they mean, any ancient words, the internet has not helped. Because now anybody with a blog can say, I think it means this. And then somebody else quotes it later and it's a mess. Lots of different definitions out there of what Israel could mean. Strong's Concordance is usually a really, really reputable source. So it's absolutely worth considering. It's also the only one that I could find that defines Israel that way. Which, by the way, just as a resource tip, you don't have to learn this stuff from me. If you're interested in this at all, or you just want to know where to find this resource, I'd strongly recommend BibleHub.com or the Bible Hub app. Bible Hub, H-U-B as in boy, Bible Hub. They've got the Strong's Concordance there. They've got, you can look at all the different versions kind of side by side and commentaries and research to your heart's content. One of the beautiful things about the internet is it makes these things so accessible to us. But as we look through these definitions of Israel, Strong says God's prevail, but God prevails. But the most common definition is of Israel is God contends. God contends or God fights. Could also be contending with God or fighting with God. Just as the people of Israel are marked by their wrestling, God is marked by his faithfulness. He contends. He doesn't give in to them and he doesn't give up on them. And as we will see in the weeks to come, he has lots of opportunity to give in to them or to give up on them. And he doesn't. Please hear that that is true for you too. God's not going to give in to you, but he's also not going to give up on you. God contends. In fact, I think maybe the primary lesson of Jacob's, of this particular part of Jacob's story for us as the people of God is that God is not afraid of our wrestling. God is not afraid of your wrestling. It does not scare him or throw him off. He doesn't abandon you just because you doubt or distrust or wrestle for authority. 
go ahead and wrestle. (laughs) Contend. And you will find that God is faithful and true. You are not abandoned in Egypt. God is not only good in the promised land. He is with you in the desert. He is good all the time. He is with you in every place, even in the desert of life's in-betweens, even when you doubt his goodness or his presence. He will fight for you. He will contend. He loves you too much not to. And what you will find there in your desert, there in the doubts and the death and the confusion is an oasis, is a place of life, of protection and provision God's camp. A place where God contends, where God is faithful and patient with us, where God is good. A place where you are named and known and loved. And if you're someone who has been wrestling with God, maybe this week, maybe this year, maybe you grew up with some idea of God and you have been wrestling with how true any of that is. You're in good company. If you've been wrestling with God and you have reached a point this morning where you feel like mourning has come, (laughs) where you're ready to let go, where you're ready to stop wrestling for authority and let God lead your life. If you're ready to stop wrestling or at the very least to hang on to God a little longer, you're also in really good company And I wanna pray for you and for me as the worship team comes up and we sing one last song together. So will you pray with me? Father God, a lot of us come to you doubting. Some of us have been following you for a really long time, but. We feel like we've been wandering around in the desert for a really long time. And we're not sure where you are or what you're doing. God, some of us, we haven't been willing to follow you. Because for whatever reason, things didn't make sense or we got hurt or it just all seemed unbelievable. Father, we come to you this morning and many of us who have been wrestling and doubting, we want you to be Lord of our life. 
We want to experience your goodness and your grace. God, I thank you that you showed your love through Jesus, through his death on the cross. That gifts us the forgiveness of sins through his resurrection from the dead that gifts us eternal life. Father, we want to let go of the wrestling this morning and receive those gifts. God, I pray that we can do that without having a hip popped out of socket. But God, whatever you have to do, God, would you do in us and in our lives whatever you have to do that we would be able to receive those gifts of forgiveness and grace and life from you. We pray all this and we praise you and we thank you for your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for checking out our podcast. Find out more or connect online at easthillsalliance.org.